Hey, Thomas. Hey. <laughs> we need a better intro. I know. Hello. Every time it's like, oh, hey. Oh, is this thing on? Oh, oh we've not been talking for 30 minutes. So I, I thought about this. Let me run this by you because people should, should be giving us money. Um, <laughs> that's a great way to start the show, too. That is a great way to start the show. We don't have ads, you know, and, and we could, we could you know, be on here like, you know making ads for for some divinity school talking some audible stuff or whatever yeah yeah go go buy casper um but man they're all over the place right now aren't they with ads casper and lisa casper lisa squarespace audible yeah i mean it's like podcasts but but they're also in like um uh email newsletters i'm getting now like the 538 uh significant digits email newsletter casper's been in there it's been interesting to watch them show up in a couple different uh, email newsletters, I get cross-channel marketing. Yeah, but they just raised another round um, of venture capital, so they're they're sitting pretty. And if, if you look at, you know, for for the most part, some of the podcasts they advertise on not not the Gimlet, you know, serial type stuff, but the yeah. the smaller tech shows that I listen to that you know still get ten, fifteen, twenty five thousand people downloading, a little bigger than us. Um, those shows also have Casper, and I would bet that they convert much better than. You know, like Serial or, or yeah, you know, whatever Gimlet does. Um, oh yeah, big big podcasts as we call them here in the indie world. So it's part of indie podcasts. Yeah. If you go to if you go to patreon.com slash thinking FM, I believe is it thinking religion or thinking FM? <laughs> it's I think it's thinking FM. It's thinking FM, yeah. Um, and and give us money, just five bucks. Like maybe we'll start making some of the pre-show or, or post-shows available. If people would people want that. I don't know, man. That's where most of the interesting content is. I know. I don't know what they're missing. Well, there's a couple yeah, of podcasts people, I listen to that yeah. do that, and and I, you know, I jumped up and ran up upstairs and got on the got on the old internet and you know fired it up and gave them five bucks because I thought, well, this is a very interesting conversation that they're having, but I really want to hear what they're talking about, you know, before quote the tape goes live. So yeah, I don't know. So if you're interested, let us know. You know where to find us. Um, where to find us? <laughs> Patreon.com slash thinkingfm. Um, are, are you going to get the iPhone X or the iPhone 8? So, um, yeah, I already have a reminder set in my to-do list for October 26th that I can begin at 3.01 a.m. here on the East Coast on October 27th uh, to pre-order the iPhone 10. Oh, so you're going to get the 10. You're going all the way. Yeah, I'm going to go all the way. I mean, so I have the 6 Plus now, and I figured out I got it the day it came out, uh, last or when it came out, and I figured that was three years ago. So it was like a week shy of three years ago in 2014. Um, you still have the 6 Plus? I, I still have the 6 okay, Plus, okay. yeah. That's what my, uh, so, what my 10-year-old has. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. I feel that way. That's how I feel. Um so yeah, it was kind of like okay, I'm gonna wait, and I, th- you know, 10th anniversary iPhone to me, it's gonna be worth it. Um, I like it a lot. I mean, the eight, the eight, honestly, seems like a fantastic phone, um, and they probably couldn't could have gotten away with just doing the eight. I mean, maybe if they just did the eight, they'd have needed to do a few other things. But I mean, the eight has wireless charging, it has all this stuff too, you know. So, uh, but the ten, it's. Um, Man, it's a it's a it's a pretty nice phone, right? It it is. I mean, it's evidently the build quality is amazing, and um, you know, it's got the same glass back and wireless charging which we had in Android in 2012, 2013. Um, 
<laughs> so I was, I was I was going through my my electronics box that I share with my ten year old. Uh, you know, have you had the big tub of just you know wireless or or, or of uh, tech crap that you're not using anymore. And I was thinking as this was going on yesterday, like, wow, well, if I got one of these, I could just go grab one of my 2014 wireless chargers that <laughs> my Qi charger right. that worked for Android phone and, and use it now. Um, well, I do. I will, I will say that that seems like a, uh, that's a bit of um, uh, kind of a departure for Apple, right? Going with an industry standard instead of creating their own. Yeah, that was a big rumor uh, that they were going to. Yeah. I was really I was really glad to see that because it's going to. Right, but I think they're realizing now <laughs> and they kind of said this. Like we're gonna use Qi, but we're also gonna help Qi like become really mainstream. Yeah, because like Starbucks has Qi charging at all of its yeah. tables, and you know, yeah, those with those of us with Android phones have you know kind of tried to use them, but it it's not great, and your phone gets hot, and it's there's a lot of wasted kinetic energy, if you will. Um, yeah. It's not a very efficient process to charge up your phone, unlike you know plugging a cord into it. Uh, but I, I definitely think you know we'll we'll see Apple really help that that out and then there were all these big rumors last year that the iphone 10 or you know whatever it was going to be called was going to be um you know be able to be charged you know wirelessly basically over the air because that technology right. is, is kind of nascent at this point it's very early but uh that's one of the things we'll see in the next couple of years but i mean looking at the stock market today uh apple just starting now i mean it, we're recording this in the morning which is different which might explain my my voice. This is early for me. Um, <laughs> apologize to everybody. But the stock market just opened, and uh, Apple's not doing so hot. Like took a little bit of a hit because people said it was not the magical iPhone 10 that that a lot of kind of tech insiders were hoping for and and had predicted. And there were a couple of leaks, and then right up until about two weeks ago, there was still a lot of buzz around it. And then kind of the floodgates opened, and we basically knew everything about the iPhone 10 and the iPhone 8. About you know week week and a half ago, um, so there there wasn't that kind of same hype train that that you get sometimes with Apple releases, which has been uh, you know kind of rare in, in the in the past few years. But you know if you think about the Apple Watch or the iPad um, or even the early iPhones, there was always kind of a nerd holiday ar around these announcements because it was like oh gosh you know what is Willy Wonka going to bring out of the factory this time. Right. And and they started the show with, on such a high note with Steve Jobs, um, kind of introducing the Steve Jobs Theater, and there was the big beautiful backdrop images of, of Steve Jobs and his iconic poses, um, which some people have compared to kind of a cult. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And and there there was some interesting kind of religiosity language around what Steve was trying to do by marrying technology with the liberal arts and. Um, yeah, now Tim Cook, the CEO of Apple, was... is quoting from the Book of Steve, <laughs> right? And he was saying, you know, we're continuing to do that to honor Steve. You know, right behind me, this huge graven image, uh, and and they had the uh, the lamp post, and they had Joy Kim on this now. Um, <laughs> but the 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 feeling going in, like early, I was like, oh man, they're they're going to blow us all away. Like they're 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 going back to something where you know they're, they're going to pull the Holy of Holies out and it's going to just burn our faces off um <laughs> like we're going to be really excited about what happens at the end of this thing so it, they started off with a bang with the apple watch because I, I think it, that was kind of the highlight of the show for me um and then it kind of went down from there and by the time they got to the iphone 10 it was like meh like this isn't this isn't breaking any boundaries in terms of you know 
oh wow, Apple just took AR and and turned its on its on turned AR on its head. Now we're all going to be, you know, fighting Tyrannosaurus Rexes as we ride the train to work type thing. Why? Well, so and <clears throat> yeah, so that was interesting to me. So okay, so these events are for they're mostly for developers. Right now, they know they're producing something a lot of people like me are watching now. Where I, I don't develop anything; I'm just interested. And you know, a lot of press are, you know, more mainstream press are covering these events too. But so they they always bring developers up to you know demo some of their apps that they think are really cool and really use their kind of new features they're uh, hyping a lot, which is and I think that's great. But they always bring up gamers and. I know gaming is very popular, but you know it's not kind of it's popular among the development community. I think at a much higher rate than it is among the general population. And what they're showing people is, hey, AR is really cool. Look at this game you can play. And most people, I think, are going to be like, okay, sure, that would be fun for like five minutes. And what they've not done, and what I think would have been really good, is to show here are some like amazing you know, real world use cases for AR that will blow away, you know, 75% of the people that hear about this. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I think that was a bit of a mistake. Um, and I, you know, again, I know it has something to do probably with the audience that's there. You want to make developers feel like they're really special and important and all that stuff. But well, so some of that, I mean, uh, this event is more geared towards press, if you will, like the fall, um, yeah. uh, you know, I event or whatever we want to call these things. Um, because typically, you know, we have WWDC in the summer, yeah, in July, that's and that's kind of where you get the, the really nerdy stuff, and they talk about metal and, you know, the, the, the amount of CPU and GPU and all that kind of stuff. Um, there aren't, a, you know, it's not as flashy, of course, because people just want to know about, you know, the APIs. Um, so this event really is, is to, to get on the front page of the New York Times or the Washington Post or front page of, of CNN. Or to have Morning Joe talk about it, which they yep. did in a very disparaging way for the last two mornings. Um, it, it's it's like a couple of years ago at the same event they had uh, I forgot what they were introducing, something with like multiplay or something. Anyway, they had the little race cars on the track, and you yeah. could control the race cars with your phone, and it was neat, but it kept failing. And then it was a terrible demo, and and the guys were kind of, you know, you could tell they're like, oh, we're gonna we're gonna sell a billion of these things because we're on the Apple keynote. And it, it didn't go so well. Not, I don't even know if that thing is still <laughs> available. Um, but, you know, that was going to be the hot new Christmas toy or, or whatever. And I, I'm, I'm pretty sure they didn't sell too many of those. But uh, that demo yesterday with the AR thing on, on the table reminded me of that. Because I don't know. I mean, I, I love games. And I, I, I like mobile games. I mean, I've got my big desktop here. And I, I play, you know, Steam games and all, all kinds of you know fun things when I have time. But... Getting up and walking around a table to do the same kind of thing I'm, I'm doing here in my console, like eh, I don't know, I don't know about that. Anyway, but that's that's beside the point. It, yeah, right. it just I, I guess it's that that feeling of expectation. And so Mariana and I watched part of this together because she you know kind of got to peep in for a few minutes. Um, and you know when it got over with, she was like, well that was pretty cool. You know what, what were your takeaways? And we're kind of going back and forth about it. And she knows I'm I'm kind of agnostic when it comes to committing myself. I, I can't be monogamous to one technology platform. So, you know, I've got my Pixel right here, and I've got my iPhone, and I'm sitting in front of a Windows machine, and there's an iPad, and there's my Linux machine. Um, and and I like to keep a leg in all of this stuff because that's what I have to do. And, my, you know, that was kind of my big takeaway was there's nothing that happened yesterday that's going to convince me that 
the iPhone 8 or the iPhone 10 even is going to be better than the Pixel 2. Um, but they're they're great at what they do, and it's great to see the small iteration. But the people that were hoping or expecting kind of a, a you know huge surprise are going to be disappointed. And she kind of wrapped that back into something like church and and what we do with with ministry sometimes, and saying like, well, it's you know it's kind of like when you know it's a big big Sunday in the church, and you get a lot of people in the crowd, and everyone's kind of dressed up maybe, and and something's going on, or maybe there's a hurricane that just went through, and people are kind of beleaguered and tired. And they're, they're expecting something, you know, they want to hear either a message of hope or a message of joy or a message of this. And, you know, people kind of front load the service and maybe the music's really good. And then the, the preacher gets up to preach and it kind of falls flat. And she was like, you know, I've had those experiences where I'm going into this thinking, well, you know, these people really want to hear this word from Romans and it's going to set this place on fire. And it's going to tie in beautifully to the, the theme of the music and, and what's going on in the liturgy this week. And, and it's going to be great. And she didn't read the room, and it, and it falls flat. Um, and I, I thought that was an interesting, interesting comparison if we're going to talk about Apple as a, as a cult. Um, I like to think of it more as a, a fashion company than a, <laughs> than a cult, but yeah. it does have those overtones, you know? Like, I don't know. It, it's, it's a kind of an interesting, uh, I guess, fetishist religion, if you will, kind of in the same way like Louis Vuitton is or... or, or you know, Burberry or, or something of that nature where, you know, once you, once you go, go deep into the stack, like you, it's hard to get out of it and, and you want more and more and more. And if you've got the iPhone, you've got to have the AirPods. And if you've got the AirPods, you, I mean, you need the watch because then you can leave your phone at home. And if you got the, I mean, you might as well buy a MacBook. So then you can sync up your notes and get your, you know, iMessages on your, on your laptop. That's exactly right. That's how, <laughs> that's what my ecosystem is like here. Um, <clears throat> I will say cellular on the watch is, is a, is a big improvement. I think that's pretty fantastic. Um, I will not be buying one of those. I had the series two, uh, and liked it, but just kind of felt like I knew, I wanted to simplify in a few areas and that was the one, one of the areas I decided to simplify in. Um, so I got rid of the series two watch, but, um, how did, did you pass it off or did you sell it? I sold it. Did you sell? Can, can I ask if you sold it like on eBay or Swappo or one of those types? I of sold things? it on eBay. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I did too, actually. So and actually, you know, got a decent chunk. I didn't get back what I paid for it, but I got pretty close considering I had it and used it every day for a year, basically. Or yeah, I did too. So. I was kind of surprised by that. I didn't think I would get anything out of it. And this was like yeah. over the summer, you know, and I was I wasn't wearing yeah. it, and I thought, meh, um, let me just see what I can get, and I, you know, put it up kind of tongue in cheek, and and. It was pretty close to what I paid for it. So I was yeah. like, yeah, okay. So, so I mean, that's good, right? They're kind of holding their value like that. But, uh, uh, I mean, at this point, but that was also a while before, like, the Series 3 was announced, you know, as, as it was yesterday. Um, obviously, now the price is going to drop on the Series 2. But Yeah, and, and that's what's interesting to me. Like, we've known in the tech world, and I say that pejoratively, but, you know, in my little world where I sit here and read tech blogs all day and, and try to filter that down for my clients, um, we have none of, you know, there's going to be a Series 3 watch, and it's probably going to have LTE, and it's probably going right. to do these things on it for, you know, a long time now. Uh, and that's what's always interesting to me about this event is is that it kind of opens the floodgates for the public. Because you can, you can I think that's right. learn all yeah. of this if you just went on the Apple subreddit like last week. But it's fascinating that we still have this kind of filtering system in place for information, even though we live in this world of... You know, you, you can know anything at any time. And, you know, if you want to know what the next Star Wars movie is about, you can probably get pretty close by going onto the 
Star Wars League subreddit. Um, you know, so it's it's interesting. And I used to see that when I was a teacher. And, and for those of you who are teachers, I'm, I'm, you know, if you ever talk about technology or something, um, you know, I always thought it was interesting year after year, the kids would come in and have the same kind of um, crazy rumors like, oh, there's going to be a hologram and, and you're going to be able to project your keyboard and, and type on a desk. And you would hear that year after year because someone, you know, picked that up on YouTube a couple of years ago. Right. Um, yeah, it's interesting to me. Like these types of events still take place that that kind of open the, the floodgates. But I think that's also, I mean, that yeah, so that that's definitely true for these events, but it's also true for Apple in general, right? So obviously a lot of people that are Android fans like, you know, like to say, oh, well, we had this you know, X number of years ago. Um, and the reality is not many people are in the cell phone industry in general right now are breaking a ton of amazing new ground, right? They'll break a little bit of ground. Everybody else will steal their idea and then somebody else will break a little bit of ground and everybody else will steal their idea, right? I mean, that's just what happens in the cell phone world. Um, but the thing that Apple does that they tend to do is they tend to make some of these things work better, even if they didn't, if they weren't the ones who you know, developed them initially. And they also mainstream them in a way that Android just doesn't do, at least here in the States. Yeah, exactly, right? exactly. Right, and that's and what so, Apple's always so it's, Right, it's one thing to say like, oh, well, sure, I had wireless charging you know, three years ago with my Android, but it was kind of spotty and it wasn't really, you know, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Okay, well, that that's great. Like, you know, that's good. But now in eight months, in a year and a half, you're going to see your McDonald's with, you know, Qi chargers built in their tables and, you know, you, Everybody is going to be just putting their phone down on the table to charge it. And it's just going to become second nature and they're going to mainstream it. And so then people will, everybody else then will expect it. And then other phone companies will have to follow if they're not already there. Right. Yep. And so I, I think that's the, that's the thing about Apple at this stage is they're mainstreaming things that have been out there for a little while, but they're making sure that they work well in their kind of ecosystem and then kind of giving it to the public because most of the public just doesn't know. Right, yeah, exactly. about exactly. a lot of these things. So I, I think that I think it works both ways. Thinking about kind of press events like the event they had yesterday, and um, then like kind of the way their products work right now. Anyway, I mean, right? And you think about the iPhone 10. What they're mainstreaming now is a thousand dollar phone, right? A high end, you know, expensive phone. They're going to be mainstreaming that now, and that's actually good for other cell phone companies because they have phones that have already come out or that are in the, you know, in the pipeline, so to speak, that are about to come out with a really high price point that are now going to look acceptable next to the iPhone 10. Yeah. And I think, you know, like you said, within a couple of years, we'll, we'll see that price point. I mean, first, yes, you're exactly right. Apple's always been the, the kind of quality standard bearer and, you know, things like T-Charging or um, uh, Touch ID or now Face Unlock, Face ID. Right. Face uh, ID. All those things have been around in Android forever. And when Touch ID came out, like Android world flipped its crap because we thought, oh, they're, they're totally copying us. Um, but it, it, Touch ID is so much better. And things like Apple Pay compared to Android Pay, um, it, it just works better. <laughs> yeah. there's, there's well, no... like, you know, like Face ID. So my wife has a Surface Pro for like her work machine now. And I think generally is is pretty happy with it. And she was excited about she can, you know, unlock it with just her face. But she was like, oh, I've had to, you know, improve recognition like five times. Like if uh, my hair was different or if I had glasses on, all that stuff. And at least according to Apple's event yesterday, like once you set up Face ID, 
Like you never have to do it again. Like yeah, it that's, just, that's, it that's just knows really it. interesting. Doesn't matter if you yeah. have a hat on or long hair or short hair, or you, you grow have a, a beard. thick beard or yeah. no beard or glasses or, right. I mean, so um, there's a big difference between how those facial recognition features work. Or, you know, it seems like anyway. Well, and and uh, I, yeah, I think that's going to be fantastic. Um, or even just build quality. You know, it Apple. Right. I mean, the Pixel is a great premium phone. Samsung makes great phones when they don't blow up. Uh, but you know like the new s8 and the s8 note those are fantastic beautiful phones i don't like their software um i'm not generally a a huge samsung fan because i think they hold back android in some ways but from a a build perspective a lot of that language gets translated and apple kind of takes it and improves on it so it's this back and forth kind of symbiotic relationship uh the the whole swipe up thing that's been the way you you get to all your stuff on android for a long long time so when i saw that yesterday i was like oh okay well they're (laughs) that's kind of a blatant copy because it's a good idea it's a good way to right get to the but home it's, a, it's also another way to make you know every little thing you can do to help more non-iphone users come to the iphone right if you yeah, make their exactly. user experience kind of seamless that makes sense and uh, on the price point i mean we can transition after this but i i think this is kind of one one of the biggest takeaways and that's what i told mariana too yesterday um when it comes to that thousand dollar price point i mean that's such a, a watershed moment for the mobile phone or mobile device it's not a phone anymore. Uh, Steve Jobs said, it's a phone, it's an internet communicator, it's a, what's this other thing? Oh, crap, I'm so old. A web browser. <laughs> you get it? it? It's a phone, it's an internet communicator, it's a web browser. Um, so, you know, the, the iPhone being $1,000 is, it, it seems maybe ridiculous now. Most people are going to discover that, you know, Verizon, AT&T, Sprint all offer payment plans. <laughs> So you're still kind of in that same trap as you were before when you had a contract, um, and, and, or you can get the uh, the Apple payment plan. So you can get you know Apple has their own little payment set up, right. so you don't go in and, and plop down you know eleven hundred dollars to buy your phone. You can, and, and God bless you if you do. But the wonderful thing I think about that higher price point is that it's going to stop this constant flood of mobile devices being seen as one year only tools. So when I see someone right. rocking an iPhone 6 like you, or 6 Plus, I think, golly gee, like either they're very budget conscious, and I, I admire that, or they just don't really care about what their phone can do, you know, because there's significant jumps between the 6 and 7, and right. 7 you know, that yep. kind of stuff. Um, you know, why wouldn't you up? It's two years old. Oh, my God. You know, like that, right. that's crazy. But I, I'm looking at my iPad Pro, and before that, I had, a, had the Air, but... The iPad, I mean, I'm not going to buy the new version of the iPad Pro. Like, this is last year's version. And it's screaming fast, and it's wonderful. I'm probably not going to get another iPad until something miraculous happens. Because I paid, you know, seven, 800 bucks for this thing. Um, and I think that's what's going to happen with these mobile devices. You know, Samsung, Pixels, Apple, uh, they're all going to be in this higher price range. Which seems unfair for consumers, but I think it's going to really help consumers justify both the value of these things as well as really kind of create new experiences in terms of developers and device makers thinking, okay, people are going to hold on to these now. The, the norm is not going to be one year or people right. like me, six months. <laughs> you know, the, the norm is going to be two years, two and a half, three, maybe four years. So what do we need to do to front load these things and stop these incremental updates like the iPhone 8 or yeah. the Samsung S8? 
Yeah, the, you know, the success. Or, like, yeah, right, right. I mean, that's, uh, yeah, right. And, and and they planned these phones out three, four, five years ahead. I mean, Steve Jobs worked on the iPhone 6. Uh, so the idea that, you know, these things are going to have to be more front-loaded, like the iPad. You know, so when the iPad right. Air came out, we all thought, why does this thing have so much under the hood? It's just an iPad. And then we found out all the cool stuff that was coming with iPhone, or with uh, uh, iOS, iOS 10. 10. Yeah. yeah, 10, right. Uh, so I, and and I think environmentally that's going to be a, a wonderful thing because right. I mean who knows how many of these things are getting thrown away but they're full of pretty terrible stuff even though Apple makes a big deal about the recyclability and not having beryllium right. and mercury but still I mean if you think about the amount of materials that we're taking out of Manchuria and, and Mongolia rare earth precious metals or parts of Africa um, you know the, the ability to hold on to these things for a longer time and have a more um, solid sturdy device that lasts for a longer time is, yeah. is a, a win-win well it also um dampens demand a little bit because the price point is higher um and i you know i think part of it is a response to a lot of people are keeping their devices a little bit longer now because they're devices that um perform well longer yeah, right i mean i'm definitely ready for a new phone because i've had this one for three years but there's a I've had iPhones for a while now and I've been kind of on a two year cycle for a long time. And for everyone except for until I got to this one, two years, I was at my limit. And this one, I'm at three years and I'm not at my limit. It's a great phone, you know? So, so I think part of it is, I I think it's working kind of in concert in all of these arenas like you're talking about. And and I think it's, I think overall it's a good thing. And And I will say the shift that the carriers have made now to, you can buy your phone outright or you can get it on a payment plan, but there's no more like you drop $200 and that's all you have to pay for the phone. And a lot of people are really upset about it. But the reality is like you're on the payment plan once you pay it off that drops off your bill if you do it that way. Yeah. And, and um, right. Whereas in the past, you pay your $200 and you're still paying for the phone. It's still built into your bill, whether you notice it or not. And that never drops off, even once you've essentially kind of technically paid the phone off, if you, unless you upgrade at that point to get a new phone. Yeah, well, it's so a, in a, the long run, it like actually... a $600 phone and it was costing, you know, $1,800. Exactly. <laughs> kind of like a right. In the long almost. run, it costs you a lot less, even though you're like, oh, I can't believe this phone is so expensive. If you dropped $1,100 right now, it's a, it's a lot less in the long run than it would have been in the past. And it also means that at any you know any day you want to leave and go to another carrier, you can. So you're not kind of locked in contracts the way exactly. you used to be. Exactly. Uh, so I, I think it, I think that's a benefit for consumers as well. Um, in general, I, well, I, I like it. It's gonna, so. we're, we're kind of going towards the way the European and Asian markets have have been for a long time in terms of, um, you know, you buy your phone outright and you use whatever carrier you want, and right. if you don't like it, like you just pop in a different SIM or in in. Asia, well, in parts of Asia, they you know use the dual SIM thing, like in, in yeah, Korea and yeah. in Malaysia. And well, it also helps too. I, I think this is another thing that helps people keep their phone a little longer because they realize how much they're actually paying for their phone, as opposed to oh, I paid two hundred dollars for it. You know, like, exactly. No, you didn't. You paid a lot more than that. You just didn't realize it. So. Yeah, yeah. And th- I mean, those are the same people who say, "Well, I just need it for my email." The people <laughs> annoy me. Yeah. What's all these fancy? I just, I just want a flip phone. Like if I if I hear that one more time, I'm sorry if you're listening. I know there, there are lots of people who <laughs> listen to the show who are gonna be angry. I don't like you when you say that. Like that's that's something that really gets under my nerves. Um, I don't know why. 
it's like Morning Joe yesterday saying, like, ah, all these new phones. I mean, I, I just want to go home and put my phone in, in, in the drawer and kick back and relax. I'm like, well, screw you, Mr. Privilege. Like, <laughs> not everybody gets yeah. the opportunity to do that. Anyway. Uh, hipsters. I saw a lot of young people complaining that there weren't smaller phones available, like the SE. Yeah. Well, actually, yeah, my wife is not going to get the um, the 10 for that reason because she wants she has the 6 Plus now too, and she wants a smaller phone. So yep. she's actually, I think, going to get like a you know a 7 or something like that. Yeah, Marianne had the uh, SE uh, up until, yeah. I guess, uh, May or June. And uh, she got it when it came out. She loved it. And I, I literally had to take it away from her because it was kind of cracked up and, and kind of long in the tooth. Um, it's got good internals, but for what she was doing with it, it, it it's yeah. her computer uh, for the most part. And I just set off my Alexa device. <laughs> Hello, blue ring. That's so creepy when it when it looks at you. You know, it gets the little light for those of you, like the Echo Dot for those of you who don't who don't know. Anyway, um, yeah, so that's Apple. I think we've we've solved solved the uh, the price construct yeah, pretty well. Exactly, <laughs> it's going to be better for everyone. That's what we. People do. will give more to churches. More people will go to university and study religion. It's going to be a great cultural boom, right? Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> it's just another. It's just another way that Apple is, you know, being our salvation. Well, you know, spurring I, I, new, spurring entire new industries, and I think, uh, I think also more people are going to buy Android phones as the price goes up, not because they're yeah, cheaper. I think that's right. But yeah, I, I mean that's the reason Android kind of rules in in Southeast Asia and and in uh, most of Europe. Like it's it's a lot more rare to see an, an iPhone unless you're in swanky. Uh, circles in Europe than it is here um, just because of that ability to outright buy something and typically an Android Android phone is going to be a little cheaper and offer a little more value for the buck but not be you know as nice but not everybody needs a BMW it's like not everybody right. needs a truck um, so I, you know I think Apple's making an interesting play here to go after the kind of you know the upward fashion market and I think a lot of people are going to say do I really need you know all this stuff or can I get by on a on an Android, because I know I, I see a lot more Android phones here in South Carolina and North Carolina, um, you know, among kind of my my circles than I would you know five years ago certainly. So um, anyway, so let's before we move to the Sweet Sixteen of our bracket challenge, we should we're going to talk we're gonna, we should talk briefly about the the hurricanes. I was going to transition um, with by saying, uh, gosh, you cut me off by saying. You know, and, and most people's computers now are mobile phones, and we see that especially in times like, you know, tragic events such as this week's, uh, these last couple of weeks' storms. You're a professional. I should have just <laughs> let you go with it. But yeah, I mean, so uh, for instance, I, I use Google Fi um, for my Pixel, which is Google's mobile network, which is very beta. Please don't, please don't use it. Um, <laughs> but it's a combination of, of T-Mobile and Sprint. So I've got Verizon for my personal iPhone, and the Pixel's kind of our work phone. So it's kind of interesting. You know, you get you got all three networks going on there, so I can kind of compare. But um, they're offering, like, free data for zip codes that are affected. So if you used a lot of data, you just go to the Fi thing, and you put in your zip code, and it gives you a credit back for all the data that you used over those couple of days for, like, Irma or either uh, Harvey if you're in the Houston area, which I thought was pretty neat. Um, so, yeah, so I, uh, I think... Uh, I think that's a good segue into 
Yeah, I agree. Well, and AT and T did the same thing, right? They sent us a text. We have AT and T and sent us a text, basically like during this period, you won't be charged any data text or call overages. Um, some people on Verizon got a text that was like, "Hey, you know, we're going to give you some extra data," and then some people got a text that was like, "Hey, we're giving you three gigabytes of extra data." Huh. So, you know, it, it's kind of different and apparent, you know, maybe even different depending on the plan that you have. But I do think that they all have kind of responded, realizing that a lot of people are going to be on their phones checking updates. Um, a lot of people are, um, you know, going to be checking the weather. It's going to be their only source of communication. If their power is out, if their power is out, they don't have Wi-Fi that they may typically use. So I, I think it's the right move, and it's a really simple thing that's not going to cost them anything. Yeah, right, and really. I, think, I think it's so fascinating to see that transition, uh, especially with natural natural disasters. So if we think back to, to Katrina ten years ago, um, you know, and how people were using devices—not just devices, but communication—I guess you know there, there were a lot of people who were stranded who had to. Um, you know, really struggle to, to be able to communicate that. Like, hey, we really need help uh, compared to now where people were using apps and sending text and, and you know, I saw lots of tweets to like, you know, the, the Houston Police Department saying, hey, you know, we're trapped in our attic. Here's our address. Please help. Um, yeah, I, I, I heard that, you know, I think it was in Houston that, you know, so many more people or at least as many people were rescued because of social media posts than, you know, just like regular kind of 911 calls or whatever. Wow. Yeah, because those systems get overwhelmed, you know, because right. the first instinct is to call 911. Um, you know, so it's, uh, from that point of view, it's it's fascinating to see how these devices have become, you know, our, our, our computers and our, our communication devices and how that's really been a, been a bit of a, ugh, I can't talk, beneficial um, transition, I think. Yeah, so we, um, so obviously you had Harvey a couple weeks ago, which was just devastating, particularly for Houston. Um, and we had Irma uh, this past over the weekend, kind of into early this week, um, which was devastating for the entire state of Florida, part of Georgia, part of South Carolina. Yeah. Um, and really, really different storms. Uh, Irma is, you know, the, what it was, the, biggest, most powerful, longest lasting storm. I don't know, kind of all these superlatives. Um, not the highest wind speed ever recorded, but the longest to be recorded at 185 miles an hour is like 36 hours straight, had max sustained winds of 185 miles an hour. Um, and just, you know, devastating for uh, the Leeward Islands, for Puerto Rico, for the Caribbean, for parts of Cuba, <clears throat> and then uh, the Keys especially, and then coming up, uh, the state of Florida. Um, we here in Tallahassee weathered the storm relatively well. You know, a lot of down trees and a lot of people without power, but we didn't actually end up losing power. So the Cat 1 that we had last year, Hermine, um, was worse uh, ultimately for Tallahassee than Irma was. And so I've seen a lot of people kind of upset about the their, what they're calling hype, right? and the preparation and canceling school and things like that. Um, but it was, it was a really weird storm because it was really unpredictable. And I mean, as late as Saturday night and early Sunday morning, there were still, there was still the potential that it could come back into the Gulf, re-strengthen and hit Tallahassee as a category three. Right. Ended up hitting us basically as a tropical storm. Um, but that's two really different things 
you know, you're talking 24, 36 hours before it's going to hit you, right? Two you know, massively different, um, you know, options that, that you would have there. So, you know, a lot of people are upset because, oh, we didn't really need to cancel school or it wasn't that bad and there was too much hype and I didn't really need to buy all this water, which maybe you didn't need to anyway. I mean, we bought some water, but um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like, you know, one of my friends was like, we never eat white bread. Why did we buy white bread? <laughs> we don't need bread and milk. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, um, so I think it's, it's easy for a lot of people, particularly in the... Um, I guess in the panhandle area where I know a lot of people and, and some people on the West coast that they weren't hit quite as bad or, you know, there was like, Oh, well, Tampa wasn't as bad as it, you know, they said it was going to be 10 to 15 feet of storm surge and it wasn't, well, you still had, you know, major flooding in parts of Tampa. Um, but then you had major flooding also in Charleston. Um, yeah, we did. So it's been kind of crazy to see people kind of upset about how it, happened and how it wasn't as bad but forget about what happened to the rest of the state and you know the caribbean um it's disaster porn just uh, yeah i mean um monroe county where key west is they said like we are closed until further notice like basically just the county just you cannot i mean they're like i think ten thousand people stayed down there in key west and last i heard they were considering having to evacuate them like with the coast guard or whatever because it's basically uninhabitable uh, basically 90 percent of the homes and structures there are damaged or destroyed um, they don't have power cell service is really spotty because cell towers were knocked out they don't have uh, water running right so you have no clean sewage and this and then, is the height of their tourist industry in, right. in some respects uh, economically. yeah so um and that's not counting, you know, things like like the uh, the American Virgin Island. <laughs> I can't talk. Yeah, right. US Virgin, Virgin Islands, Islands or, or um, you know, uh, parts of Puerto Rico that are right. parts of the United States. But right, yeah, yeah. evidently so, St. I mean, Thomas where it was, you know, really really affected. Yeah, I mean Barbuda is. I don't know if you saw Barbuda. It was yeah. um, it was kind of crazy, right? I mean, they said ninety percent of Islanders destroyed and then seeing like pictures from satellite where entire islands were green and now they're brown the vegetation is just gone on entire islands um so it's been um it's crazy i mean it's so it's you know we got through just fine no issues you know a lot of trees down but no damage where we live or anything um but it's just you know it's a lot uh right now you have harvey and i think and i think that also played into people being you know really concerned about because you you know it's right on the hills of harvey exactly Uh, exactly but but we also watched it come from the coast of africa and we just and we knew it's going to hit us we just don't know how bad it's going to be and exactly where it's going to hit um yeah because i mean up to two days before it was going to go up the east coast to florida and then kind of circle back into charleston and and right and then it Right, so we thought, oh, it's it's actually going to be it's going to be better for us. So it's going to be worse for the Carolinas, and then and then it was like, oh no, it's going to come right up the west coast, and it's oh, it's barreling in on Tallahassee. You know, it's like every update, <laughs> right. it's moving, and I'm getting all these texts like, okay, what are you going to do now? It's moved west like 15 more miles or something. And I'm like, you know, okay, we we have our plan, but um, yeah, it's a really really hard storm to prepare for. Um, but as I said on Twitter yesterday, like I will never be upset about being over prepared. Yeah, exactly. Uh, particularly and that's, for that's, something like that. Right, because they, they uh, canceled school here on Monday, and people were upset. And, you know, I was watching the news on Sunday night, and it was, you know, they had the, the pro and for, you know, newscast type thing, and 
you know, some local parents are saying, uh, you know, we just had Labor Day, now we've got this, and I can't take off of work, and this is really hurting me. Um, and then Monday was was pretty rough here in Columbia. I mean, we, you know, it was 50, 60 mile an hour wind gusts, which doesn't sound that bad, but for an inland city, like, that's not something we're necessarily equipped for. So there are lots of down trees, and we flood easily with any rainstorm in the summertime. Um, so we had a little bit of that, but it was, I mean, there was one point around two o'clock Monday afternoon. I was like, well, this is a lot worse than I thought it was going to be, even if right. it hit Charleston. Um, and we were right beside a hospital in our neighborhood, so we didn't lose power, but a lot of our neighbors were without power for, um, you know, half a day or a day. We lost the internet for a few minutes. So thank, thank goodness for, uh, <laughs> that was a, just a mini existential crisis for Sam. <laughs> Lots of wine was consumed. Um, but I, I made use of my Verizon Unlimited plan. And then Verizon started getting weak, so I'll switch over to Fi because everyone hopped on Verizon. You could tell, like, LTE sort of yeah. started yeah. dipping. First world problems. Um, but, uh, yeah, it, it's it's fascinating. And, and this is not going to be the last time. I mean, I think as our climate continues to change because of you know, human activity, we're going to see these uh, these cyber – not cyber storm. Jeez, I'm still stuck in <laughs> – <laughs> these uh, super storms really um, – it's a bionic storm. <laughs> well, that's coming, I'm sure, with, when Skynet gets ready. Yeah. Uh, some of these storms that, that we couldn't have imagined before, like Irma. I mean, 185 miles an hour. That's crazy. Like, I remember, I mean, at one I remember point, the storm Hugo, was a, and that was... Right, exactly. And Hugo was crazy. Yeah, that came right up through, um, through South Carolina and North Carolina, right through us. We had a massive 100-year-old tree go down in our yard, come through yeah. our dining room. Yeah, we were, we were without power for two weeks. Yeah. I mean, that was, uh, that was, that was nuts. Um but the uh, and I actually we were clearing the farm and I was learning how to use a chainsaw because I was like 10 seems safe and <laughs> <laughs> I go to chop this tree and I've got my goggles on I think and I noticed there's like a, ne- a little nest and I think oh, it's like a bird nest it was a nest of like baby squirrels and uh, so I, I picked them up and I, I, I uh, surreptitiously got them inside and broke out my uh, my Encyclopedia Britannica or whatever it was and figured out what baby squirrels ate and started trying to feed them milk and that didn't work. Anyway, so I figured out it was like carnation instant milk type stuff. <laughs> that him. always does the trick. <laughs> carnation. <laughs> instant carnation, instant breakfast. Yep. We're like a baby dropper. Yeah, it worked. So I kept these two squirrels for like eight years. It was from the time it was Hugo was in 89 and I went off to college in 96 and they died right after that like both of them together, like very shortly. So Chip and Dale, and by the time I went off to college, they were completely uh, like tame. Like they, you know, they would, you could let them out of their cage and they, they were kind of like little bunnies. Like they would, uh, you know, run around the house and, and play with you and they were potty trained. Um, and it was, it was pretty cool. And now I look back and like, Oh, I should have maybe returned them to nature, but they, they never, never knew nature. But so that, that's my Hugo story. Chip and Dale, they were good yeah. friends all throughout high school. Nice. Ah, <laughs> uh, um, yeah. So our thoughts and prayers go out to people here in the continental United States as well as people down on the islands. And definitely, if you you know if you can give, do. If you can volunteer, do. That was one of the biggest needs we had here in Florida was volunteers with just so many shelters open. Um, so you know we we did what we could. Um, but it's you know don't. It's really easy. I, to for you know kind of move on with our lives because it wasn't so bad for us but you got people in houston and then people all in the islands and in the peninsula of florida that 
this is going to be something they're dealing with for months uh, and some longer. Um, so, you know, let's let's not forget about them just because, you know, the sun is shining today. Yeah. And I was just checking on traffic. I know yesterday here in Columbia, traffic was atrocious because um, Columbia kind of is a hub between, you know, I-26 and I-20 yeah. and I-77. Right. So you, you can go north or south or get back to 95. And um, a lot of people came up from Florida through this way. And I know 95 yesterday was absolutely terrible in south carolina as people are trying to right. get back into florida when well, um, and 10 was too which 10 runs east west basically coast to coast and yeah. if you if you go west i mean like you come up the peninsula like the first opportunity you have to turn left and go west is i-10 and so if you went west to evacuate the storm and you're coming back i-10 is east is about the only way you can get back to the peninsula uh so yeah it was a parking lot yesterday too yeah they had a bunch of um shelters and stuff all along 26 and 95 here mm-hmm. um yeah so i-10 that's the way you go if you're coming out and trying to get up through like macon or something huh well it runs east west so yeah you know you would come over i-10 and then you would go north but um oh and it's there's nothing there's no like interstate from like if you're in mariana or even tallahassee like to get north you have to go through like Bainbridge or something. You can't. Yes, just, you can't just hop on an interstate to go north. Um, and so, like when we traveled in, you know, North Carolina all the time, um, we don't take the interstate at all. Basically, we take back roads through Georgia okay. until we get, you know, essentially to Columbia. We'll, we'll hop on seventy five for a little bit, but um, yeah, for the most part, it's we take back roads. You can go ninety five. The map will sometimes have you go ten over to Jacksonville and go up ninety five, but it's fifty or seventy five miles longer. <laughs> And yeah. yeah, it takes more time, and I just I hate ninety five. So yeah, ninety five through Georgia, and I mean even South Carolina, it's it's terrible. Um, anyway, wow, that's what I, I didn't realize that. It really, is kind of like a triangle because we have that same thing in South Carolina, and yeah, they're, they're building a new interstate from Charlotte down to Myrtle Beach. That's gonna kind of bisect that, thankfully. Well, that but that was part of the problem with the evacuations, and now it's part of the problem people getting in is when you live on a peninsula, right? There are you don't have many options. For how to get out of that peninsula. Well, so everybody goes to the same place or how to get back in. And, and you know, uh, the United States is such a, a car culture, especially here in the southeast and especially right. places like Florida. I mean, there is no public transportation to get from Tallahassee to Atlanta. No. I mean, I, I guess you could hop on a Greyhound somehow. Greyhound, but, but that's about your only option. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I looked that up one day um, to go from like Columbia to Atlanta on a Greyhound. It's a two and a half hour drive, two hour drive, depending on traffic. It takes like 18 hours. Right. <laughs> so right. Like, it's so much longer what? to take a bus. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So hopefully one day we'll we'll have, uh, you know, Elon Musk's um, hyper hyperloop that will take you from Miami to New York in, you know, 30 minutes or an hour or something. But we'll see. Um, speaking of hyperloop, do you want to? <laughs> Let's hyperloop this uh, the Sweet 16. <laughs> Since we have a few more minutes left, do you want to hop in and, and knock out some of these Sweet 16 and the Bible Bracket Challenge? Yeah, let's do that. Let's do that. So we're down to 16 teams left. Um, we started with how many? 92 or something? We started with a lot. 94, I believe. 94. Uh, what's really interesting, in the 16 teams we have left, um, they are all canonical except for one. And that one is obviously the Gospel of Thomas. The Gospel of Thomas. But it's interesting to see how the canonical books have... 
um, kind of floated to the top. And, and that probably, I think, largely has to do a little bit with they have cultural cachet or cultural knowledge that other books don't uh, just because they're not canonical. And so sometimes one of the things that we used to judge sometimes is, well, this is just much more kind of relevant culturally uh, or more popular culturally. And, you know, the Apocryphon of John doesn't have a, ch- a chance there because hardly anybody knows about the Apocryphon of John or Bell and the Dragon, something like that. So, um, so yeah, I, th- I think we can get the, get through these uh, kind of quickly. So our first matchup is Matthew versus Ezra. And um, going off of this like cultural cachet, right? Cultural popularity. Uh, for me, I've got to lean toward Matthew. But I was thinking about, you know, what's the thing I want to kind of highlight? Because so, so for some of these, I've, you know, talked about them a lot. So I want to highlight different things. I don't think I've, have I talked about the synagogue across the street in Matthew yet? Uh, no. I don't think Krister Stendhal's idea... Kind of briefly, but yeah, it was it was early on. Yeah, so um, so that's a you know if you think about there's this uh, Swedish um, a scholar he's not alive anymore, but his name was Christer Stendhal, and, and his his idea for reading uh, the Gospel of Matthew was reading you know talking about the synagogue across the street. So the idea that you have Matthew's group that you know, believes that Jesus is the Messiah. And then there's a synagogue across the street that doesn't believe that Jesus is the Messiah, right? So they're, you know, both predominantly Jewish groups, etc. And that Matthew is written as a handbook to answer questions that come up after reading the Gospel of Mark. So right, the assumption is that both Matthew's community and this, you know, quote-unquote synagogue across the street know the Gospel of Mark. And certain questions arise, and Matthew is going to answer those questions. Right, so for instance, uh, Mark is seems to be pretty clear Jesus is not a son of David, or at least is very very ambiguous about it. So that would be an important question, you know, for you know a, a group of Jews that you're trying to convince that this is you know the Messiah. You should believe in him. And so, what do you get? You get the genealogy starting in chapter one of Matthew. And, you know, within the first three verses, he's called, you know, David is mentioned like three times or something like that. And it's very clear David is the key to the genealogy. So 100 percent, you know, the author of Matthew's opening up saying, yes, he is a son of David. OK, so kind of all these questions that arise throughout the Gospel of Mark. So you have the son of David question you have. Right. There's no birth. There's no resurrection. Right. And Matthew kind of makes sure that you have all of those things. So I think it's a really interesting way to read the text if you're kind of thinking about, you know, who is the audience here um, and thinking about how does the text use Mark? Uh, because it obviously does. And we can talk about redaction criticism and all of that. But just kind of in these kind of higher order questions of, you know, what's the way to think about it and thinking about it as a handbook. Uh, for the synagogue across the street is a, is, is um, a, an idea that I like a lot. Um, so I've got to go with that. Matthew's obviously much more popular culturally um, than Ezra is, and it's just got so much to give. I think um, Ezra's very important, but Ezra kind of has to be paired. I think often with Nehemiah to kind of maintain that importance. Um, so I've got to go with Matthew three two over Ezra. Yeah, I, I'm going to say four one Matthew, um, I, which is a surprise. I, I know I love Ezra and talked about that on the show for for those of you who uh, have been listening to the Bible Bracket Challenge. Um, but but in this case, Matthew is is a much more impactful. And um, no, uh, that's hard to say. I'm, I'm not I'm not going to be pejorative. Matthew is a book that I, I think, when compared to Ezra, is 
you know, got a, got a lot more going for it. I'll say it that way. Yeah. Um, it's hard. You know, it, I don't I want to. I sound super sessionist when I do this. Um, I, uh, I, I, let me explain my lens, too, because I, I know on Twitter a lot of people have asked about this, why I keep going for the Old Testament books. I don't even like the term Old Testament because the Old Testament, New Testament dichotomy to me is is hurtful in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, you know, and Paul talks about this New Testament thing in Romans. But for me, it's it's all one covenant. You know, there is no new covenant. And Jesus is a part of the same covenant with God that Moses was, that Jeremiah was. Um, and when we try to, you know, lay on top of the old covenant, this new covenant, and say, well, Jesus represents this new approach by God to reach out to humanity and say, hey, it's it's all good. All you got to do is believe in me, and now you're all set. Don't worry about all the other stuff we've been doing for a couple thousand years now. Uh, for me, you know, going back to, you know, Sinai, going back before that with Adam and Eve, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, you know, uh, this is all the same covenant. So in that lens, this is all one big, not story, but one big interaction with God. Um, theological, historical, you know, however you want to play it from there. But uh, I, I don't, I try not to kind of view this as the New Testament versus the Old Testament. So I just want to put that out there. And, and I don't, I don't want to sound like someone who says, well, I don't try to see color. I don't see black and white. And you're a racist because you, yeah. But um, in this case, I, I do recognize the fraught uh, history of these two collections of books. I think it's one collection of books, and I think that's the way our our Christian tradition wants to hold that up, as weighted as Christian tradition is. Uh, there's a reason we rejected Martian. There's a reason we rejected Valentinian. You know, so let's let's not kind of make it about Old Testament versus New Testament. That's my soapbox. Um, in, in light of that, yes, I, I, I I'm not completely on board with the synagogue across the street and we'll talk about that next week when we have more time um i I do like the the emphasis that it puts on kind of the quote jewish nature of matthew but i I think that gets overplayed quite often right yeah for sure and i i think it's kind of a way for especially new testament christian scholars to to say no no we've got some jewishness going on in the new testament and and see here here's matthew and it's it's the jewish jesus I, i think there is Obviously, some some interplay between um, what what Matthew has Jesus doing compared to the Mosaic Covenant. Again, kind oh, of making absolutely. this connected. Um, but but to you know try to make this about Jewish Christians and say that well this was you know a propaganda piece or this was a uh, the gospel that was meant for Jewish Christians. I think that's um, I think we we have a lot to discover about the early followers of the way uh, in Jerusalem that or even in, in uh, Antioch, that we haven't explored because we've been so Paul-heavy. Um, so just as we're kind of opening up on Quranic st- uh, studies, I think we're going to get more and more, uh, hopefully, information about what was happening on the other side of the Jordan from Paul. Um, because, I mean, Paul invents, in my in my book, Paul invents Christianity for That's a very right. political reason. So Matthew wins. Great book. Go read Matthew if you haven't read Matthew in a while. I reread it a couple of weeks ago. Um, we were working on something in, in a Sunday school session, and uh, just you know, kind of sat down and I started reading Matthew 10, which is one of my favorite sections of the Bible. Uh, and and Matthew just has so much going on in there that you really miss out if you conflate it with Luke and and particularly Mark. But you know, if you try to put Matthew beside its 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 uh, brother there in the book John, like that, you lose out on a, on a lot of what Jesus was sort of saying in Matthew and, and Matthew's Jesus is 
not the nicest of guys. You know, he's not the, the gentle Galilean by any means. So go, go pick up little Matthew 10 and get some apocalyptic in your in your breakfast cereal. All right. So next up, we All right, have so, yeah. Romans and Esther. This is going to be difficult because my wife has Esther going all the way. That's what. No, I'm not going to make that. That's what Mordecai said. <laughs> but, exactly. <laughs> I would say, but she does go all the way, right? That's the whole point. Show title. <laughs> well, I love Mordecai. Um. All right, Esther and Ruth. Um, Esther, great book, lovely book. It's come a long way. I mean, it it only had a. Well, you know, it, it actually beat Luke in the first round. That's right. <laughs> Strong book. Yeah. Um, but I'm, uh, I know this is something that Danny Goodman, looking up or down on me from Gehenna or Sheol, is going to roll over. But um, I'm going to have to go with Romans here. Uh, even though Romans took out Second Samuel. But Romans for for me is a very hard book to to grapple with again because of my lens and I've got this crazy you know early mid 20th century ideal of of the collection of books being all one collection and the covenant being all one covenant so what Paul is doing in Romans it seems a little hurtful um, to the the covenant tradition and I don't agree with a lot I don't agree with many things uh, that that Paul says in Romans or writes in Romans. Um, but it is such an impactful book on so much of Christianity, especially modern evangelical Christianity. Um, I've had debates with family members about what's it Romans eight, where you're not supposed to drink because you might influence a, a brother who's, you know, an al- alcoholic or something like that. Uh, you know, the, the parts about fornication and, and that being read as homosexuality in this 21st century sense, um, just the, the the impact that the book has had as people lay our modern worldviews on top of Romans and, and try to look down like it's a fish tank and, and pick out fish and say, oh, well, here's what Paul says about this, so therefore that's what God says. Um, but it it is a it is a, a very fascinating and as we talked about, it's it's Paul's theological treatise and whether or not he gets to Rome which I suspect he didn't. Um, I think that this book gives us both historical and theological insights that we would not have had about what was happening in the early church. And the fact that there is something going on in Rome by early uh, Jesus followers uh, in, in the 50s, 60s here, uh, that's that's really fascinating. I mean, Rome is a long way from Jerusalem, a long way from Antioch. So to see you know, that there's a community already there and Paul's singling out people, including women leaders, I think that that's a fascinating aspect as well. And, you know, Paul's sort of grappling with the same questions they seem to be grappling with about Jewish-Christian relations, about, um, you know, kind of the theological identity of of who you are. Are you part of the covenant? Are you grafted onto the covenant? What happened to the old covenant? And just the wrestling with those stories, you know, harkens back to me to like Genesis 32. You know, Paul is wrestling with with God and with man here. So, therefore, I'm going to go with Romans. Uh, I'm going to say... Just because my wife, three two. You know, it's not only is there a community in Rome um, that, importantly, Paul did not start right, like he does a lot of the other places that he writes to. Um, they're a pretty powerful community. And I think that's evidenced by 
um, you know, him writing to them the way that he did and uh, kind of all of that. So I think that, I think that says a lot. I agree. I have to agree with you just um, for what it gives us for um, the theology, both good and bad that it has spurred. um, Romans is clearly the much more influential text. Um, McBacon's description of Esther, notwithstanding. Right. And it was, it was a really good description. If you don't remember it, um, you know, he was upset that we had kind of, maybe talked a little disparagingly about Esther, even though Esther beat Luke, right. To say, yeah. Um, but, but it was after it beat Luke before it beat Colossians that he said, um, he described it as a non-observant Jewish woman, wins a triple X version of the bachelor outmaneuvers, the Persian courts, power player and institutes Purim hashtag goat, which is true. Uh, and that's all really good. But I, I still think that, um, Romans just has a lot more to offer. Um, and this is interesting because this is one where I think both of us, there's a lot about Romans that we don't like, but yet we still think <laughs> that it should win. Um, so I'm going to, yeah. I'm going to agree with you um, both on Romans winning and on the score. And I'm going to go three to Romans as well. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's, there's a reason. Well, and this is again, coming from a 21st century Protestant Christian tradition, white males, all that stuff. But, you know, there's a reason you and I had to sit through a class on Romans and not a class on Esther. Even though yeah. a class on Esther is fantastic. I'm not saying it, you know, whatever. But that was kind of not a required class, but it was a class that, that was, you know, heavily touted because of its importance for modern-day theology. If I were coming from a different perspective, I might have a different answer on that. Uh, I know uh, in, in the 350s, uh, Esther was a very important book for the people of Dury Europus. Uh, especially in the Jewish community, because lots of the wall paintings have to do with the stories from Esther, with um, how she was able to set up Purim, Purim and, and um, you know, kind of work to, uh, you know, uh, free her people, if you will. Uh, so there, there's a lot of cultural reading into. But from our context, from my context, which is the only context I can come from, Romans is a, uh, I'm going to have to say, better book. Because that's the language we're using here, right? That's the language that we're using, yeah, which is the best. <laughs> yeah. okay. And it, people are, you know, never mind. I'm, I'm not going to give the joke away yet. We'll, we'll do that at the end. Yep. Stop attacking us. Stop attacking Britain. Uh, okay, so then the next one is, um, oh, yeah, that's right. That was 10 years ago. <laughs> 10 years ago today. Can you believe that? Or yesterday? Um, all right, so the next matchup is Judges versus Revelation. Um, and I kind of feel the same way about this as the Romans-Esther matchup. Um Again, Revelation just has so much to give. Now, I actually think there, there's a lot in Revelation I do like. There, you know, I, I don't have as much of the kind of negative feelings about some of what you find in Revelation um, as I do about some of what you find in Romans. But of course, that's because I think I read Revelations more correctly than a lot of people do. Right? Um, it, it's not the Left Behind series. It's just not. <laughs> um, no matter what Tim LaHaye wants you to believe, or you know how anybody wants to scare you. Um, that's not how you should read Revelation. Just a fascinating text once you start recognizing the symbolism or reading it that way and understanding um, the you know, the genre of apocalyptic literature. Then Re- Revelation actually becomes a pretty, I think, fascinating text. And, I, and then, you know, one of the other things I'll, I really like about Revelation is you get the New Jerusalem and all this stuff. You get the New Heaven and the New Earth. But the New Heaven, the New Jerusalem, um, is not some far-off place. It's here on Earth. 
right? So it's kind of this idea that like if we're going to, you know, if you're interested in kind of like, you know, the Lord's Prayer idea of, you know, bringing about the kingdom of God here on earth, um, that's what Revelation is kind of talking about as well, right? That it's something that happens here. It's not this escapism that I think a lot of evangelicals have, uh, you know, fallen into and read it as, right? All oh, this is this, you know, horrible tales of what's going to happen to all the bad people that don't choose God, you know, don't choose Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior. And then, you know, have all the questions about, you know, pre-millennial rapture or, you know, post-millennial uh, rapture, or how's it going to happen? And, you know, we're, but either way, we're going to get to, you know, be taken away from this horrid place. Uh, that's just not the message of Revelation at all. Um, so for me, Revelation over Judges 3-2. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I'm going to agree there. I, I like Judges a lot. <laughs> um, not, not necessarily for the theology, but for the theological story um, that's presented. And the violence... The the uh, the ferocity of, of the perceived theology um, is very difficult in some places to read, but the the transition from being a wandering people in the desert to entering the promised land into this period of kind of democratic um, chaos into what we get with Samuel and, and Kings, where the kingship is established with, with uh, Saul and David. Um, I think this is a fascinating part, and we get things like the Song of Deborah and wonderful, um, you know, kind of early, um, you know, perhaps oral traditions or, or, you know, things that, that kind of predate what we see in the Deuteronomistic history. So for me, from a, from a historical and a theological point of view, I, I think Judges is very important and very heavy. Uh, so I, I love that it's made it this far uh, into the tournament, um, especially beating First John. I think that's fantastic. Uh but yeah, I mean, one of one of my favorite experiences um, in divinity school was taking um, a class with um, Adelia Adelia Albro Collins. I even messed up her name, Adelia Albro Collins, <laughs> uh, who's a lovely person and uh, just really uh, such a, a, a fascinatingly fascinatingly, um, I, I guess, uh, how do I say this? Like a inquisitive but but like a domineering person in a conversation and uh and, and she's got this just presentation style that kind of takes you takes you off your your feet for a bit because you can tell she, you know she's knows what she's going for um and her husband was my advisor john j collins and uh he, he's kind of <laughs> it's funny because he's got the opposite kind of personality like he's you know very kind of not subdued but very quiet and, and you know you can tell he's incredibly intelligent, but um, you know you kind of have to pull it out of him. Whereas she's she's uh, not timid when it comes to that. But I remember there was this one part of that class where she asked a question, and for some reason I'd written a paper on Revelation in undergrad, and I scribbled in the marginalia of my Bible like the answer, like oh this relates to this other group that was in Central Turkey at the time, blah blah blah, and I answered you know, kind of timidly saying, I, I think it was the uh, so-and-sos. And she was like, yes, exactly. And anyway, I'll never forget that moment of her affirming my, my marginalia. So, um, yeah, uh, uh, that kind of anecdote aside, Revelation is read wrong. Read wrongly? Is it wrongly? Read, read incorrectly. Read incorrectly, uh, that's what I would say, yes. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thomas at thinking.fm. Um, and the 
the, the real shame uh, in that is is that there's like you said so much going on there that that we'll talk about next week because it's going to go up against kind of another book probably that has a lot going on in it um that who's it going to, yeah yeah matthew versus romans one of those two um so from again historical and theological and uh today isogetical exegetical points of views i mean i think revelation is accessible in ways that other biblical books aren't accessible because there is so much allegory and symbolism and um such such a uh, a spin on, on apocalypse literature that we don't normally associate with the New Testament. We get some echoes of that in Daniel, for instance, but um, you know most people don't read all of Daniel uh, Daniel in, in the same sense that they they do the New Testament. So you're reading this stuff literally, and all all of a sudden you get to Revelation. And it's like, whoa, what, what's going on here? Um, so yeah, Revelation, hands down. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna go. What'd you say? Three two. Yeah. That's your default score this week, huh? Yeah, it kind of is as I look down my list, yeah. Well, it's hard. I mean, you know, both of these books are, are important and, and very heavy books. But yeah, I'm going to get a 3-2 as well. All right. So Revelation. Oh, no, I'm sorry. It's got to go against either Job or Hosea. Yeah. So this is kind of a tough matchup for me, um, Job Hosea, because... And so I've talked about here, you know, on the show before, um, I'm not a huge fan. I really like Job. I don't like the ending of Job, right? I've talked about that. I think I've made that pretty clear. There's some things I do like about Hosea. It does some really fascinating things with names, right? I'm going to call you Ami, okay? That's my people. But now I'm, I'm going to call you Lo Ami, which is not my people. It's, a, you know, like nice little kind of wordplays there with names. And then you also have this really great feminine imagery of God in chapter 11 and chapter 13, right? Where God is kind of likened to like a nursing mother. Um and I really appreciate that, that we get out of Hosea. Um, but I think I've got to go with Job because I think there's so much more to talk about, right? I think Job, again, like kind of offers more, or, you know, fodder for difficult conversations. Uh, but it also pushes back, you know, I don't like the ending of Job because of, you know, kind of how it sets up. But it, clearly Job is blameless. He has done nothing wrong. But then God is still like, well, that doesn't matter. I'm still God, which is just this kind of like, eh, like, you know, he throws this trump card that is not very meaningful for me. <clears throat> but but one of the things that Job does that that I, I do really appreciate is it pushes against the idea that was, you know, I, I, I think probably prevalent at the time that, well, you're being punished. And so it must be like either you've sinned or, you know, your ancestors have sinned. And so you're reaping the, you know, the just punishments for that. And, and it kind of states unequivocally that just because bad things happen to people doesn't mean that it's like punishment for sin, um, which I think is still an oddly necessary message, right? If you think about the way um, some uh, preachers will respond to events like, Hurricane Harvey and Hurricane Irma or Hurricane Katrina, right? Well, it's, you know, it's God's punishment because, I don't know, like gay people live there or some stupid shit like that. Um, like there's clearly plenty of just absolutely abysmal theology to go around. But Job continues to, you know, be a source to push against some of that. So I've got to go with Job 3-2 over Hosea. Hmm. That is tough. 
because I, I was gonna. I don't know. Also sat through a class um, just on Hosea for a whole semester, and that was mind blowing. Because you're able to really get into the the weeds, you know, and some of the uh, some of the Hebrew interplay in, in Hosea is just unmatched. Um, you know, maybe maybe Jeremiah, you know, kind of compares, but you know, Hosea is the first to uh, to compare the relationship between God and Israel as a you know, as a as a marriage, right? And countless churches, <laughs> Protestant churches, and probably Catholic churches and Angl- Anglican churches. Correct me if I'm wrong, Lauren. Uh, use that metaphor every Sunday. You know, it's it's God is the the groom and the church is the the bridegroom, um, or Jesus now. And just the the allegorical nature of Hosea uh, compared to what we get in the surrounding text, you know, like I said, maybe not Jeremiah, but we lump Hosea too easily into the Minor Prophets, you know, the Book of the Twelve, and say, like, well, you know, it's a great little book, and it goes along with Amos, and and that's true, you know, you can read them both together, and they kind of have the same, you know, doom and gloom feel about them, but just the way the Hosea stuff sets up this marriage as an allegory between Hosea and Gomer and we get these children with these interesting names. And again, if you read it in the Hebrew, it, it really takes on a, a different dimension. Right. Because in the English, it's, you know, what, what does lo rum ha mean? Like, yeah. that doesn't make sense. Um, you know, but, but these names that are translated into English equivalent, or not equivalents, but you know, English uh, interpretations, like unloved and pitied. And, and then we, we kind of see the, the nature of God pulling back from the northern kingdom, uh, lo ami, like, you're not my people, uh, which is, is damning. And then at the end, God pulls back from Israel itself. And it, it's a, you know, God kind of changes God's own um, identity, if you will, by renaming. Uh, like with the northern kingdom, God says, um, let me find it. Yeah, I am not your I am, at one point. Um, that's... Wow, yeah, that's kind of rolling back the the, the stone there, uh, not in a good way. So that that metaphor, that allegory, however you want to classify that, I know some people don't like allegorical readings. I like allegory. Uh, the the ethical mon- monotheism, I guess that that wonderful twentieth century <laughs> yeah. phrase to describe Amos and Hosea. The ethical monotheism of these of these books, but especially Hosea. Is, is fascinating because Amos has a lot to do with social justice and, you know, MLK can quote from it. It's got some great qualities there. Jose is much more theological in its ethical monotheism mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, n- not not practical theology, but, you know, just, just thinking about the relationship with God on, on a different way. And I think there's a lot that modern day um, people of, of all religious faiths, but especially 21st century Protestant Christian you know, maybe evangelicals could really get from Hosea if um, if you were to sit down and, and take it seriously and, and read it for, for what it is and not try to make it about Jesus. So um, Hosea, wonderful, fast, fascinating, lovely book, but for all the reasons you said, I'm, I'm going to have to, for, for the sake of, for the sake of the tournament, I'm going to say the same, 3-2 for, for Job. And we'll, we'll talk more about Job. I think Job's got a reckoning coming up. Job's not, not that Job's had it easy, but but Job gets a lot of um, Job gets a lot of, of Job of gets a lot of credit for for asking tough questions. Yeah, yep. yeah, you know, and then like you said, it kind of falls flat at the end. And 
I don't know. I, I, I like reading Job, but I always come away from Job thinking, all right, well, you know, if you read it from from the chorus, from the from the friends that come in, that's an interesting perspective. If you read it from the perspective of God talking to Job, that's interesting. But if you read it from Job's perspective, like, God's kind of a jerk. Yeah. You know, there's, it doesn't it doesn't resolve itself in that way, in, in a positive way, I guess. Just kind of says like, well, yeah, but I'm I'm the deity, so deal with it, yeah. Yeah, pretty much. All right, do we want to try to knock out these last few? You got time? Um, I've got time. Question is, will, money, honey. will people I've keep listening? Um, yeah, yeah. Let's try to knock them out. Finish the Sweet Sixteen today. So next we've got John versus Gospel Thomas. You want to start on this one? <sighs> Gospel Thomas is the only non-canonical book to make it into the um, into the Sweet Sixteen here, and that's that's big. I mean, First Kings it, it defeated it defeated uh, Proverbs and Wisdom of Sirach. Um, Gospel of Thomas is, is just a a selection of, of non-narrative sayings that I think um, corroborate with with a lot of the gospels, but also betray some of the <laughs> some of the uh, themes of the gospels. And as I dig deeper here, um, the, the shortfall for me for the Gospel of Thomas is the nature of a, of a sayings book that doesn't necessarily have context. Not that we need narrative, but... So it's not a gospel. It's not a gospel, yeah. right? And, and I think that is really what hamstrings the Gospel of Thomas. You know, people pick it up. Like, my mom tried to read the Gospel of Thomas once. And she was like, what, what is this? And it doesn't take long to read. No. If you're just reading There's 114 it. sayings. Yeah. Right. Uh, but if you're really trying to understand it it's something else and i yes i i'm a huge fan of trying to read into gnosticisms and figure out you know um uh dualistic uh theologies and that kind of thing i think that's a, a very interesting play is gospel of thomas you know necessarily you know quote gnostic I, I, yes i know but um some of the the dualism and some of the uh the presentation there compared to the gospels is really fascinating, but that, that's where Gospel of Thomas falls short. Is that, as a sayings book, you have to compare it to the Gospels. So you have to con- you have to say, well, how does Gospel of Thomas line up to Mark? Or how does Gospel of Thomas line up to theoretical Q? Or how does it line up to Luke or, or John? And taken by itself, it's really fascinating. But I don't think you can take it by itself in the same way that you can take John by itself. Um, and I'm not a huge fan of Jesus and John. I think, you know, it's, it's a little little much. Um, and we'll talk about that next week, but I think it's interesting that the two books used, well, not two books, but, but when people talk about Gnosticism in the New Testament, like these are two of the books that people pick out to it kind of represent that, that docetic, uh, even, um, uh, theology that, that gets developed in the second century or late first century. Um, but yeah, I don't know if we could prove the gospel of Thomas was written in the forties or something like that. I think that would be fascinating. Um, you know, and the dating for the Gospel of Thomas is all over all over the place. As some people have it in the second century, some people have it, you know, pretty early on. Um, and yes, they're saying forty-two in there, which which you know, Thomas and I live by or try to. I think uh, you get the wonderful theology, not theology. You get you get the wonderful saying of you know, split a piece of wood and, and I'm there, 
almost this animism nature of, of uh, the kingdom. And the kingdom of God is within us. It's, it's not something that you have to look up into the sky to, to wait for it, you know, wait for it to drop down out of heaven, which I, I think is, is fantastic. But, and we'll talk about more of this next week, John, for me, is, is definitely the winner here, um, as if you take the whole context. And even though, like I said, John's not my favorite gospel, I think the impact that John has, John 3.16 alone, um, which we need to unwrap, but uh, even the, the 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 crucifixion and resurrection, or you know the, the passion in John, I think is, is really fascinating to, to to look at as well, both independently and uh, in, in relation to the other gospels, and also um, the, the community of the of the beloved disciple. You know this this whole community that was around this this gospel is a fascinating. I keep saying the word uh, historical uh, situation. And people like Culpepper have written a lot about the community of the beloved disciple, and you know what was or who was the beloved disciple? Was it John? Eh, doesn't really line up. But no. <laughs> um, yeah, so just uh, saying the fourth gospel, I think, is the the more accurate way to portray this. Uh, so just for those types of layers that you can get out of this um, within a canonical context, I, I guess I should say, because you can do the same thing with Gospel of Thomas or Thomas. Um, but but John's going to win this for me. Um, I'm, I'm going to have to blow you out here four one. I thought that I thought that might be the case. Um, so this is a really tough one for me. Obviously, um, it's really hard for me to, you know, can I vote against my namesake? Um, <laughs> and John is not my John is definitely my least favorite gospel. Here's four kind of Christological and theological reasons. John is my least favorite gospel. But John is a super interesting text, and it clearly uh, wins the day for how people view Jesus, right? Matthew um, kind of pretty quickly becomes the most popular gospel because they think like, oh, well, Mark has summarized stuff, but it's not, you know, its chronology is all off, and Matthew's better basically because Matthew fixes it, and they think Matthew is written first because it has a birth narrative, even though it clearly was not, or it was written what, 10 or 15, 20 years after Mark was written, just copied like the majority of Mark. Um, but as far as how people understand, you know, most Christians today understand who Jesus was, um, the foundation of that is in the Gospel of John. So you cannot, um, you can't kind of poo-poo on um, John's place, uh, which is a little bit disappointing for me. Um so here's what I here's what I've settled on because I kind of thought you were going to vote that way is I'm going to vote three two on the Gospel of Thomas because I think it's a fascinating text I think it uh, does reach back all the way at least in some of the sayings to the historical Jesus uh, and gives us a really fascinating look into the Thomasine community um, and I can't vote against it but I yeah, know I that John should win. So I'll vote three two, and that means that I've still voted for the Gospel of Thomas, but John will win this this round. That that's why I uh, voted for one. Just two. Uh, yeah, and so there goes the last non-canonical text. Um, but I do think it's fitting that the Gospel of Thomas was the longest surviving non-canonical text. Yeah, because there were a lot of them. A lot of them in <laughs> we there. did put a lot in there. Okay, <laughs> let's move on quickly before I can change my mind and dwell on that too long. Um, <laughs> Gospel of Thomas. Uh, yeah. So James versus First Samuel. Um, the reality is First Samuel's got to win here. 
Um, you know, if we were going to talk for a while about this, I, you know, we take a bunch of different angles on a lot of these texts. I would take the, the David and Jonathan angle here because it's kind of really interesting and fascinating um, with like what, what was their relationship? And you've all, you know, you've got all these interesting passages in first Samuel, like in first Samuel 18, where, you know, Jonathan strips himself of his robe that he's wearing and gives it to David and his armor and his sword and his bow and his belt. Um, and you have, you know, David talking about him, you know, kind of, you know, becoming his soul and, um, clearly looks like something more than just a platonic friendship. Um, uh, though I will <laughs> say, Game of Thrones here. <laughs> yeah, I will say, um, Sam has, you know, often stripped himself of his robe and his armor and his sword and his bow and his belt and given it to me. So. <laughs> I came to you at night in white linen. Yeah. So, um, yeah, there's a lot that I like about James, but I do think for Samuel, um, it is, it's got to prevail here. So three, two first Samuel over James. All right. I'm going to the same way. I mean, I, I read a paper again in seminary that said, um, James was early. I, I favored an early dating. I was in a Danny Goodman class and, um, he was not, he, <laughs> <laughs> he, he was not agreeing with me, but, but he appreciated my, my attempt to give an early date and, and even care about the date of, of James. Um, I, I, I honestly really dig James. James is a fantastic letter. Uh, and it, it's one of those books that, um, again, I, I think we skim over, uh, it's got a, a, such a freighted history, especially in the reformed tr- uh, tradition. And I wish some of my reformed brothers and sisters would read more of James. Um, it is in the, it is in the Bible. Uh, but yeah, first Samuel and I'll talk more about first Samuel next week, but yeah, I love the David and Jonathan scene. Uh, it, it's, it's aching for a, a new test or a Netflix, um, yes. series. Well, so there was one, right? There was the, there was, wasn't there a series that was short lived. It was, was it called Kings? Oh uh, yeah, you're right. That's and right. it did like, it was like the David, you know, story kind of set in the modern day, basically. Yeah, and so it yeah, did yeah. have this little bit of um, kind of David Jonathan stuff going. on. It was a good show, but it did, I think it only lasted a season. Uh, but it does yeah. it, it it would um, it would do I think well now potentially if you get the right people to do it on Netflix. Yeah. Well, it's, if people are going to sit down and read, you know, all eighteen thousand pages of of Song of Ice and Fire, or you know, all of George R. R. Martin stuff because of Game of Thrones, which it, it's not very good fantasy writing. I'm just right. going to go out there and say that. Like I've read three of the books, and and they're not very good. You know, like it's an interesting story, but he's not a, a wonderful writer. Um, I, I think you know, making First Samuel, Second Samuel, First Kings, Second Kings. Ah, I mean, ugh, can you imagine people actually going back and reading the Bible? <laughs> so anyway, yeah, I'm gonna get First Samuel four one, and we'll talk about Sam some more next week. But the call narrative alone, like Hannah, and and uh, it, it's it's wonderful, wonderful stuff. And it, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm gonna pitch it to Netflix. We'll get. Um, we got to have a good looking Samuel who, who can get older, you know, kind of a, I'm, I'm trying to cast him now. Yeah. But you got to be careful because you don't want a white guy. Right. Samuel wasn't white. Anyway, uh, I like Jesus. Wow. For John for Samuel, that's going to be fun next week. All right. We got two more. Are you ready? Yeah, let's do it. We can do this. If you're still listening, thank you. Uh, <laughs> Patreon.com slash thinkingfm. Daniel versus Mark. All right, let's save that one for the end. Uh, Exodus versus Genesis. <laughs> let's, let's do that one first. Uh, 
Genesis, not really a surprise. Kind of got a first round by, beat up on the Gospel of Philip. Then uh, Ephesians, it took on, beat up on Ephesians. So now it's up against Exodus, who also got a first round by. I don't know how that happened. Uh, beat Galatians somehow. And then Jonah, which is one of my favorites. So now we get the the two, uh, the two, I guess, uh, most well-known books of the Torah, if you want to go for yeah. uh, modern-day tellings. So if this was Genesis versus Leviticus, it might be a little different, or even Deuteronomy, um, which I'm still not sure how Deuteronomy <laughs> lost to James. But <laughs> Genesis versus Exodus. Um, whew. All right, I'll, I'll go. Exodus is... One of the most important, if, if uh, like, how do you how do you say that? Like, Exodus is very super important, yep. <laughs> especially the first few chapters. And um, yeah, you get the burning bush, you get the, the story of, of Moses and and how Moses comes out of Egypt and and goes into Midian and hooks up with Jethro, who introduces him to this freaky god and the Midianites, you know, wherever they were historically, like. People have tried to find Mount Sinai and figure out where that happened, and it's such an interesting uh, play there historically. And and I love Exodus or the first part from the historical point of view, and also theologically. I mean, uh, Moses kills a guy who's beating up on a, a fellow Hebrew, and then you know he has to flee, and then he got he's got to go back, and God says you're going to speak for me, and and Moses says no no you don't <laughs> you don't want me speaking for you. And God says, no, no, you'll be fine. And, and Moses says, look, I, I'm not a very good public speaker. And God listens to him and says, you know what? Take Aaron. <laughs> so, <Yeah. laughs> Marianna preached on that last week, and I was hoping she would do that joke. I love that part of, of Exodus where God's like, you got a, you got a little, uh, little speech impediment there? You got a little, little something going on? All right, all right. Yeah. I, I, missed, I overplayed my cards. Take Aaron. <laughs> he's, he's good. So it's kind of like a Mel Brooks scene. Um, you know, and Moses comes down from the... From the uh, from the mountain with with his three tablets and he drops one and he says I've got the fifteen commandments the, the, the ten, ten commandments, commandments. <laughs> can't can't beat that have you um, seen the um, have we talked about the Eddie Izzard ten commandments skit oh god no it's, we haven't oh, oh it's put that so good it's so good. you put that in the show notes uh, and there's a there's a stop motion Lego version of it too um, that is just absolutely amazing uh, if you don't know eddie is he's just a fantastic comedian but he does this great bit on the ten commandments right it's like oh you know he comes back and they're smelting metal <laughs> like what are you doing and he's like all right i'll get some commandments like i'll get 10 they're like no we just need one nope it, it's gonna be 10 they're like never piss in a toaster <laughs> Why would you cover your neighbor's ox? Oh, you know, oh, you can't cover your neighbor, your neighbor's ox. So I think you're going to hell on a technicality. Um, where's my duvet? Anyway, it's so good. It's so good. You've got to watch that. We'll put it down in the show notes. Um, yeah, so it gives us good fodder for something like that. Okay, sorry, I was interrupting so, you. So, yeah, yeah. The, the first half of Exodus is fantastic theologically. It's it's uber important. I mean, gosh, there's, there's no way around it. Uh, second half gets a little into the weeds if you're not into uh what happens next if you will um and it leads into leviticus which is such a such a uh um miss misunderstood book but uh, because of what genesis is um and we'll talk more about this next week i'm gonna go with genesis um i gotta get three two again i i I mean just because exodus for me is is 
such an impactful book, and uh, my own personal theology has a lot to do with with that idea of Exodus, and just because of how Exodus historically gets wrapped up with the Northern Kingdom, who I much prefer to the Southern Kingdom. Sorry, um, Benjamin. Uh, the the story there of Moses and how that compares to um, what happens with Rehoboam and, and the Northern Kingdom later in the Deuteronomistic history, I think it's just really interesting. Golden calves and all that stuff. Um, but yeah, Genesis, just for Genesis 32 alone. Uh, three two. So this is a tough one, right? I mean, as you you kind of outlined a lot of the reasons why, but maybe it's kind of tried to say like there would be no Exodus without Genesis, right? Um, well, maybe, maybe, maybe not. I don't know, but I don't know. It is. It's such a found. Again, we're talking about foundational texts at this point, and um, Exodus gives us, you know, a lot of the, you know, Moses story, and obviously gives us the Exodus. Um, but you also get like, okay, like the, I've been in the desert. It's a big desert, but it's not that big. Like it didn't take forty years to get through. Um, but then with Genesis, you have obviously the multiple creation narratives. You have these really great etiologies in Genesis. That's one of the things I really like about Genesis is stories that explain things, right? So the creation narratives are not designed. Their purpose is not to tell you how the world was created. Their purpose is to answer questions that people have. Why do women have pain during, during childbirth? Oh, here we go. Now we have this, you know, bit about the the fruit in the Garden of Eden. Right? And, and, you know, why do snakes have, like, hip bones but not have legs? Oh, well, here's a, you know, here's a story to explain that. Um, right, so the, there's so many really interesting etiologies that give us insight into um, kind of the worldview at the time. Um, and, and, yeah, I agree. I mean, there's, there's so much in Genesis um, – there's so much in Exodus, right? It's really hard to me. It's a it's a coin flip here, um, but if I'm flipping the coin, but maybe weighing it a little bit, I've got to go with Genesis two. So three two Genesis over Exodus, even though Exodus like yeah. provides the foundation for um, like Matthew, like we talked about with the picture of Jesus that we get in Matthew. Right? Exodus and Moses provides the foundation for that. Yeah, and, and again, the Northern Kingdom connection. I mean, that's it's. Um, mm. I hate to see Exodus go. I thought Exodus would um, would make it. I, I didn't. I didn't realize Genesis was going to plug along there. But yeah, Genesis. All right. So now we have our last, and, and this is our most difficult up. out of this round, I think, because of, of uh, both of our personal theologies. Either one of these books could be the best book in the Bible. I'm just going to say that. I think that's I, I, I think that's true. So it, it's kind of disappointing that they meet up in the Sweet Sixteen, but I mean that happens sometimes, right? When you get you know Carolina like Duke, Duke, Duke UNC, yeah, yeah. Um, and there's so much good stuff in Daniel. You got the Lions Den, you got the apocalyptic stuff, you got the bits that um, you, know, you got so many like the dreams and um, the interpretation. So there's so much good in Daniel. Um, but then you have Mark. I don't know. All right, if John is my least favorite gospel, Mark is clearly my favorite gospel uh, for the picture of Jesus that we get for for so much that we get. And they're the kind of the pace of Mark. It's very fast. Everything happens immediately. Um, you get the messianic secret, or Jesus is like healing people but telling them not to tell anybody. And you got questions about why that is. Uh, you have obviously the fantastic ending that we've talked about. You've got the great opening, right? A really kind of great opening scene. Um, 
I don't know. I have to vote for Mark um, because it's one of my favorite books in the Bible. Um, and because it clearly it provides, it is the foundation for Matthew and for Luke, right? Um, the Gospels that I think people know a little bit better. Um, there would We can safely say there would be no Matthew or Luke without the Gospel of Mark. Um, so I have to go with Mark, but this is a tough one. So for me, as like pretty much all my scores have been today, it's 3-2 Mark. You're going to make me have <laughs> to decide this. Um, yeah, Daniel, it is... It's uh, it's so weird, you know, in, in a kind of a modern, again, 21st century Protestant Christian system, whatever, uh, lens. And um, j- just the the amount of time you can spend studying Daniel from, you know, everything from like, uh, you know, kind of kind of the different layers, you know, if, if you want to go down into the chiastic structures and now it spells out you know, this in Aramaic and, and how parts of it are in Greek. And then you get a little bit of Hebrew and um, there, there's like this reusable portion. John Collins does, at Yale does a lot of work on this and some of the, the divisions of language. And, you know, it's, it's a book in a kind of in a quasi final form. I'm sure it'll continue to evolve over time, but in the form we have it now, you know, you can't get back to 300 BCE and say like, Oh, here's your book of Daniel. Um, and for for that alone, like it's, it's to me, it's just kind of a fascinating uh, work of interpretation history throughout the years, and just how it's used uh, in, in coordination with things like Revelation, um, especially when you talk about you know Nebuchadnezzar's dream or you know Belshazzar's feast, and you get the I mean Johnny Cash wrote a song about Belshazzar, you know, <laughs> can't can't argue with Johnny Cash. Um, I, I didn't go to church growing up until I was like in my mid-teens, and still one of the stories I, rem- I remember my mom telling me or reading me late at night or something what was about the uh, you know the fiery furnace and um it, those those types of cultural impacts that that just sort of sit there and percolate in the background are, are very fascinating and of course we get the son of man in daniel right which you know jesus identifies very closely with especially and uh was it mark and, and matthew if you will and um I think ugh. I mean really I don't know I don't know Shadrach Meshach and Abednego man plus plus for me of course I, those I, are their Babylonian names right I know and, and the Babylonian who is it Hananiah Azariah and Mishael yeah right and the nature of of how this book goes from being kind of a Babylonian book, but it's written at the time of the Maccabees, perhaps, and it's got a lot of Greek influence, and you've got, you know, allusions to Alexander, maybe. Um, where is it written? Is it written in Egypt? Is it written in Alexa- Alex- Ugh, Alexandria? Is it written over in, in Persia? Um, uh, plus, you get William Blake, who, who does some fantastic uh, artwork uh, around this. Um, duh. Yeah, I'm going to have to go 3-2 as well. Just because Mark is, like you said, Mark, uh, the, the New Testament without, or the Bible without Mark, I'll say that, would be a completely different text. The Bible without Daniel would be a different text, but Daniel is still evolving in, in many ways. So, for instance, if you're a Protestant, you don't read Susanna or Bell and the Dragon. If you're Catholic, that's thrown in there. Um, so you, you get these different versions of Daniel still, and it, it doesn't have a an anchor 
but it's got so many um, kind of tertiary impacts on on our culture and, and on our, I guess our modern contact or contexts. Uh, but Mark as a whole, um, like you said, not just the Gospels, but I mean the entire Bible, uh, the entire path of, of what we know as Christianity and I, I would say Jewish Christian relations would be different without Mark. Um, and again, Mark is also a book in play in terms of not being completely written. I mean, there are those of us who don't like to read the last chapter of Mark because it was tacked on later to kind of wrap things up. Um, and I, I'm definitely one of those people who think that without that last chapter, Mark would be even an, an even stronger book. Um, but it, it's tacked on, and, and now we have it as part of our Christian traditions. But um, overall, uh, for me, the, the Jesus that appears in Mark playing off of Daniel um, is is such an impactful figure, and, and the book itself is is there. So, yeah, three two Mark. Man, we got that some. Tough. <clears throat> that that was tough. We got some really good matchups for the elite eight: Matthew versus Romans, Revelation versus Job, <laughs> John versus First Samuel, and Mark versus Genesis. There's no there are no easy matchups left. Dang. I t- I don't know who's going to win. I don't either. I really don't. I mean, looking at this, it, it could go a number of different ways. And First Samuel and Job are the only books left out of uh, the Hebrew Bible. I know, and there's three Gospels left, which honestly, that probably needs to change next round. It probably will change, but... <laughs> Sorry, Luke. <clears throat> so if, if we look back, our, our current leader right now is, is Trevar, uh, still. Stories about women. And then Professor Walters, uh, with the Wrath of God. He's got Romans winning. Romans is still in play. Uh, oh man, McMakin, he's out because of Esther. Sorry, sorry, dude. Oh, yeah. Man. And uh, at the end is is Mariana. <laughs> she had first Peter winning. First that, Peter, come on. She, I got her into the whole Parochoi thing. That was a mistake. <laughs> was... Every every week we're talking about Parochoi, and I'm like, stop preaching on the Parochoi. <laughs> You've created a monster now. I really have. She won't. She won't read the part about you know Jesus being an Israelite, but that that's for another show. <laughs> All right. So tough matchups again uh, next week. Um, just a reminder. Yeah, think about. Remember those affected by Hurricane Harvey, Hurricane Irma. If you can give, do give. As always, the best possible thing to give is cash. It's easier. They can buy the supplies that they need. Uh, you know if they. If, that's just the best thing to give. If you're local and a shelter tells you we need X, Y, and Z, you can take them those products. Sometimes it's clothes. Sometimes it's you know diapers. Sometimes it's baby wipes. Sometimes it's air mattresses and cots. But if you don't have, if you're not told that by a specific organization, give them cash. It's the simplest thing for you to do. I know it doesn't feel very personal, but it is the absolutely the most helpful thing to do. Uh, so yeah, sure. keep that in mind and and maybe read into you know Red Cross is doing some really good things, but maybe read into a little bit about the Red across the structure and that's exactly what i was going to say and maybe like, think about some other organizations uh, to give to besides the red cross <laughs> exactly not not that we don't appreciate the red we cross, do no i mean the volunteering i did here with irma was through the red cross they're, they're doing really good things but uh, thinking about where your cash is going and for your cash to have the most impact there there are some other organizations um that maybe you want to look at so, and I'll try to find some and put links in the show notes just in case people. Yeah. Um, again, thanks for listening. Uh, we appreciate it. Um, we both weathered. It's kind of funny. We're so far away from each other and both had to weather the same storm. Um, just a massive, massive storm. 
that came through. But we both came through the other side uh, just fine. Though that's not true for everyone. Thanks for listening. You can find Sam on Twitter at Sam Harrelson. You can find me on Twitter at Thomas Whitley. And you can always find this great podcast at thinking.fm. Were you talking about the Donald Trump presidency when you're talking about the storm that we had to weather? <laughs> yeah, exactly.